Hello and welcome to DWeb Decoded, a regular video podcast. I think I'm settled on, on that term now. Um, I'm Danny O'Brien, I'm Senior Fellow at the Falcoin Foundation and Falcoin Foundation for the Decentralized Web. It's pretty much the decentralized web that we talk about uh, in the show, uh, mainly talking to people who are building the technology, uh, know something about the real world that might be applicable to the future of the decentralized web, um, or a little bit in between. And I would say uh, my guest today, Ezra Al-Shefi, is one of those people who knows a little bit of all the areas that will be key in the next, uh, the next few years. Uh, Ezra is on the board of a few things that you may have heard of. She's vice chair of the board of the Wikimedia Foundation. She's also on the board of the Tor Project, developers of one of the most strongest tools for privacy and freedom online. She was also on the board of the directors of Access Now, which you may not have heard of, but it's one of the bigger uh, global uh, digital rights organizations. Um, and nowadays, she's head of protocol safety at XMTP Labs, focusing on privacy abuse and censorship resistance, with an emphasis on the needs and lived experience of underrepresented and vulnerable global communities. XMTP is a secure and open messaging protocol and decentralization communication network. But like, I feel like I kind of cut that down, but it's, it's good to have you here, by the way. <laughs> um, uh, I kind of I cut that down, but I realized as I was cutting it down, it really doesn't convey who you are. Like, how did you end up on all those boards? Yeah, so I guess I can start. Uh, well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. Super excited to be here and talk about these topics from the angle of decentralization, which is not something that happens very often um, in our yes. space. So about 20 years ago in Bahrain, where I'm from, I launched what was initially a community platform that gradually morphed into a network of sites and mobile applications that amplify underreported and marginalized voices in the Middle East and North Africa. And really why I turned to the web um, is because it was genuinely the only way we could express ourselves and have our voices be heard, being in a country and a region where censorship and surveillance was the norm. Um, and sometimes, you know, we say censorship and surveillance, but I want to highlight the extent of that censorship and monitoring and how enormous it was. And this was between the years two, 2003 and 2006, where we really had no right to privacy online whatsoever. Um, at some point, we were required to register every domain we own to the Ministry of Information, as well as provide our biometrics data to have access to a SIM card, signing off on um, agreements that basically everything we do online will be surveilled. So to be online, we had to basically consent to this. So this is how I became aware that we were really nothing without our privacy. We were unsafe. We are censored, controlled, uh, surveilled, um, in many cases, even exploited. And these things became a lot more, um, you know, common when people start talking about it in the context of mainstream internet platforms, whether it's TikTok, Twitter, uh, or, or in the context of big tech. But really, this is something that I would say millions of people and many communities around the world experienced from the very day we started even using the internet. 
So that's why um, privacy and security are really the underlining principle of everything that um, our organization has built. So I remember, I remember, the, you know, the, I, I would say like one of the reasons why you ended up on all these boards, right, is that you actually had like the lived experience of that kind of pervasive censorship and surveillance, which was a little short on the ground at that, at that time, right? There were lots of people who had very theoretical ideas about surveillance and encryption and things like that, but they were mostly people who weren't particularly targeted either by their home state or by by others. And, um, and so in that period, there was just this moment where people realized that these abstract ideas about building a private or um, a privacy, uh, anti-censorship resistant, surveillance resistant technology was not just a theory anymore. Like this was, this, this was being tested and failing in these countries. Um, did you, how, how did you find that first kind of interaction between being someone facing that on the ground and meeting people who were kind of concerned about it, but like have been thinking about it in a very abstract way? I would say that it was really because I wasn't only a user of the internet, but I was also working with a group of people where we were actively thinking about and creating alternative places for us to be online and creating platforms that were built for our unique context and that were really took our needs into consideration because we thought, well, we didn't have access to these tools, but really it was the open ecosystem that made this affordable and very cost efficient for us to actually just go out there and start building. And I think that was one thing that I really ended up highlighting that introduced me to a lot of um, organizations, communities, people who were writing about and thinking about specifically how open infrastructure was also impacting creators in environments that were uh, dealing with censorship and surveillance as a norm in their everyday communities. But beyond that, how do we build, build platforms, products, applications that understood that we also had to protect our users because they were using it in, in life and death situations. One of our platforms, for example, is specifically built for the LGBTQ plus community. Um, and that was really a scary thing for us to do because either we can choose to do nothing, in which case we are completely invisible as a community online and we could right. not interact or access resources efficiently, or we could take this risk, but we had to seriously think about how do we build and anonymize this community and deal with the issues of moderation, um, trust and safety in a way that was also collaborative um, and new and interesting and things that were really not being tried before. So yeah. that got us into more people coming to us and wanting to talk a little bit about how are we building from these perspectives and how does it differ from the existing tools that we had available to us, um, but which lacked the um, which lacked the features that we were seeking. It lacked the privacy. It lacked the security. We were concerned about how completely centralized and controlled they are, especially in an age where we started noticing the 
how collaborative it was between governments and corporations and all the heightened takedown requests. And we were seeing our websites, even way back to the days of GeoCities, we were using these site, you know, these site creators and hosting um, services to curate information about um, political prisoners or to collect information um, about how many websites were being censored by specifically which ISP and why were they targeted and what are we doing about it and how can you bypass that censorship? And, and then noticing how even these sites were taken down, that's when we started really understanding the importance of data portability, of um, decentralization. But really back then, we didn't know what the word was until yeah. more recently. Yeah. I mean, I think that was one of the key parts of it was that Michelle, uh, org Is it Michelle? How do you? Yeah. yeah. Yes, okay. Michelle.org. Okay. Um, like when I first encountered like all of that, that kind of network that you were building, <clears throat> one of the things that was obvious was A, this was like global class web design and and you know these were these were amazing sites that you know were incredibly professional um and they were catering to a very marginalized and vulnerable set of communities like i remember the site that you did about migrant um uh, worker rights which was great like it was beautiful and at the same time like doing a site like that based in the Middle East, right? Rather than, you know, some European kind of, isn't this thing that's happening somewhere else bad? Um, was an, inc it was a, was a hard thing to pull off on a number of different axes, right? And like, you were also building local social media. So was, so how did you threat model that? I mean, were you just sitting there going, okay, we have to encrypt everything? Like, what a, how, do you, how do you get beyond that thing that you describe, which is like, maybe I shouldn't even do this at all? It was always an open collaboration. I mean, first of all, we knew we had to stand out. We knew that we had to build stellar designs, interactive websites. We had to really excite and encourage people about working with us so that these issues become heard and become more visible. And in the very early days, we did not take that into consideration. We didn't have the capability, so we went out and we looked for it because we realized that we were not really standing out. We had very limited um, visibility. We didn't have a lot of excitement from people in the region who wanted to come and work with us. But immediately when we started, and it was really those, you know, reading those how-to blogs of how to set up a WordPress page and how to customize a plugin and which hosting service should you use and here's why you should not use shared hosting environments for security, really kind of relying on available data that was out there. And I would say it was really the WordPress.org forums that gave us a lot of ideas when we would go out there and say, hey, we want to turn this map into something um, you know, more interactive. We are mapping abuses in this region. Um, is anyone working on something like this? And people would come and they would share you know, information about how we could reuse something that they maybe built even for like a sporting event. But how can we repurpose that for um, archiving human rights data, for example? So it was really thinking about how do we repurpose existing tools 
and um, you know plugins that were already out there because we didn't have the developer network, we didn't have the money, we didn't have the resources, and more often than not, the capability. Um, but when we started doing that, we started seeing a lot of people come to us and saying, hey, I'm a developer in Egypt, I'm a developer in Syria, I want to support, here's what I can do. Um, and that's when they started coming and doing audits, you know, and kind of protecting our infrastructure. Um, I mean, for number of years. I mean, we even had um, servers that were hosted in somebody's residence in Syria, for example. You know, we were toying with many different types of um, infrastructures, environments, plugins, tools. Some were open, some were not. When do we decide not to use something that's not open, for example? And how do we operate with this level of, you know, openness and privacy and security as a core principle, but at the same time, not let the fear of doing something wrong by, you know, stop us from going out there and pursuing these types of uh, platforms that we think was really serving a big need. So we knew that we were not perfect. We still are not. In many ways, you know, it's it's really just an iterative process where you go outside and you ask people, hey, this is, you know, we're using discourse now. We migrated from this other um, uh, framework. How do we improve it even more? Because we realize that security is, is not really the number one key thing they're serving, uh, solving for. It's really more about usability. How do we build something that honors both? So I would say that level of us pursuing and inviting that collaboration uh, is really what enabled us to build a number of different platforms that eventually became more and more advanced and complicated as we um, as we grew. For example, MIDI Stunes, which became an archive of independent musicians who use music as a tool to not just for as, as a tool to advocate for social justice, but also as a tool in many ways to bypass the censorship right. and surveillance because it was harder to monitor audio and especially harder to monitor audio in music settings. Yeah. So that really enabled us to kind of expand our work. And we really marketed it as just a music platform to escape the censorship that we saw many of the platforms experience. And we were only censored in maybe four or five countries, which for us was a record because we usually get censored. <laughs> Censored, you know, in 20 plus. So um, that's when we started thinking about creativity as an approach rather than just technology. And, and what, what was the time? What, what time are we talking? What years are we talking about here? Because I kind of. This like, is we... between 2007, 2009 right. that I would say that we started creating um, MIDI Stunes. Um, we launched MIDI Stunes more publicly towards the end of 2009. Um, and then, of course, we had Crowd Voice uh, come. In the very early um, uh, months of 2009, and what's you know, Crowdvoice? Crowdvoice was founded over, um, I would say, over 18 years ago at this point, and basically it harnessed the power of crowdsourced and crowd-verified media to contextualize social movements around the world. The idea was that access to organized information. Um, makes us all better advocates, you know. So it, it served basically as a historical archive for media coverage, raw footage, videos, and images that can be uh, that can be preserved. And it was about you know just protests. But beyond just saying hey, there's protests happening in Bahrain, what we saw was lacking 
and what you know other crowdsourced um, platforms at the time, which during this period was really not that many, um, what they were lacking was that further context. Why were people protesting rather than just the immediate coverage of how many people are protesting? So we started you know, connecting the dots with infographics and backstories that were also crowdsourced uh, and people could come, they could dispute sources, kind of like Wikipedia, but in a much more visual and organized fashion where it is you go there and you can kind of select a timeline and say, I want to see all the protests in Bahrain or Syria, you know, between 2008, 2011. So, and go ahead. Yeah, so this was kind of uh, rough. So there were two like intersecting things here. One, this was a period where the internet was, I mean, it was centralizing up, but it hadn't completely centralized up. So it was... <clears throat> the idea of forming a website, building a web, WordPress website, and having that be the center of a social uh, movement was was not a, a ridiculous thing to think, right? And it sort of preceded and then included the time of the uprisings across across the Middle East. Um, like, do you think those? I know this is over-examined, but do you think that that growth in what you were doing was a symptom of the culture right then? Or as some people kind of present it, kind of one of the engines that led to those uprisings? I mean, I would say, so even in the 90s, we were surrounded by uprisings. And the main difference was that we just lacked the tools to document it. Right. Um, you know, it was something that was fleeting in the media. You know, we had very limited coverage. We still have journalists unable to access many countries because they don't get visas. There's a lot of control and censorship. Many of these countries, you know, that we were operating from were essentially police states at the, you know, um, at the very core. So we were building with that in mind. And I think it really kind of goes hand in hand that we see an, an opportunity. And because of that, we see a responsibility to really take advantage um, of the whatever the web was providing to us and make sure that we can leverage it in order to do the things that we couldn't do in the 70s, 80s, 90s, where a lot of these histories are not even preserved online anymore, right. or they are in little bits and pieces. And we didn't want that to repeat itself. And the interesting thing, so when we created Crowd Voice, it was before, you know, the uprisings had taken place. And but it was really, it, it in terms of usability, um, became a critical tool for organizing in our communities, especially in the face of incredible amounts of censorship. So I, I would say that that made a big difference also in, you know, at the time it was really specifically very regional. And we started getting contacts from people in Mexico, Indonesia, Russia, and and people saying, hey, this could be really useful for our use cases as well. And we, and um, instead of this, why don't you use this API, which is actually better and more open and more secure? So they were also kind of co-creating this platform with us. And that's when CrowdVoice actually became a much more global. I would say it is probably the only global platform we ever built. Everything else was for a very specific regional context because that's what we lived it with. That's what we knew. We wanted to build with the correct context and not speak, you know, on behalf of any other communities, but we would often collaborate with other communities so that they can use these tools, um, you know, and go build their own instances, but in their own voices. So, so I would say that with CrowdVoice, that was definitely, um, you know, a, 
the right platform at the right time that we started thinking about even before the uprisings rather than sort of as a result of. So uh, then sort of moving forward in time, we have this period where, and in many ways, kind of like the, the, um, <clears throat> the Western kind of description of what was going on in, in, uh, in these protests, which was always sort of, you know, Twitter revolution or Facebook, whatever, <laughs> was a sort of prelude to those platforms kind of dominating the discussion, dominating the framing and dominating like the technology use, right? And mm -hmm. that's continued till now. So, I mean, what happened next from your, your perception? I mean, did you carry on doing these things and uh, or were you sort of constantly pulled into this centralizing uh, more homogenous kind of environment? I would say I resisted it with everything that I could, but there were times where I felt like that's the only place you could truly sometimes amplify a message. And I why, would often why did do you, it. Why did you resist it? What was your Because thinking? it was wrong. It is not the way the web should operate. And the web shouldn't feel like a scary prison for our data, um, you know, and by extension, our very identity. And that's what was happening. Twitter you know, or um, TikTok or gradually, you know, tool after tool, these were all centralized platforms that were, you know, using our data, monopolizing our data, not being very clear with what was happening with our data. And more importantly, they somewhat had control even over our thoughts based on the algorithms, what we were thinking, right. what we were accessing. Um, and that's something that I knew from the very beginning was going to increase because we saw this happen um, even, you know, as we started seeing the, the web gradually become more and more centralized and Google and the Yahoo's that were out there sort of embracing that centralization for profit and for control. Um, and it, it was only a matter of time that we started seeing that this was the web that many powerful people wanted to build. It was a web for them, but not a web for us. So what it was, was no the, longer a collective, um, you know, uh, tool. So what was the practical effects of that? Like, I, I mean, I, I share that kind of like at the time, certainly that kind of, oh, this is not how it's supposed to be. But you were you feeling like consequent? I mean, you obviously threat modeled like your own, tech stack, was there like a practical consequences of suddenly being dropped into somebody else's tech stack? What do you mean by that? I guess like I spent a lot of time at that time going, don't go on, you know, don't go on Facebook, don't go on Twitter. But I was never actually, it was very hard to verbalize like why, like people mm -hmm. would go, well, give me an example. Like what, what is, you know, what, what harm is going to come from that? And I think now people are very cognizant of it, but I'm, I was always at the time trying to look around and see, you know, had somebody, what, what did it feel like for you in a setting where, you know, the threat model could really be um, a matter of, of, you know, getting information deleted, people getting mm -hmm. threatened, people, um, uh, getting scared off the network. Yeah. I mean, I would say it really, for me, it comes down to almost specifically five things. What I would always tell people, you know, is 
it's because I don't like, I mean, I do have a presence on these uh, platforms. And again, it's for networking purposes, sometimes amplifying something. Um, there's something that you gain, of course. But I knew that it, it, it should not be where we stopped innovating and it should not be what we settle for, more importantly. And number one is that we definitely deserve um, freedom and security from monolithic systems. I think we have all seen proof of what happens, for example, when even rogue employees in some place like Twitter give up the direct message data of Saudi dissidents, you know, or advocates or feminists or journalists, and what that leads to, which is torture, imprisonment, death. There's really dangerous examples of the misuse of our data. And again, it comes back to some of the collaborating um, with governments. But even if a company says, oh, well, we'll never do that, you never know. I, even, you know, the company gets bought out. Um, there's a rogue employee. Um, so the number one thing is just don't have that data to begin with, which is not how these uh, platforms would ever agree to operate. Right. Obviously, censorship resistance is a big one. Your content being flagged and deleted um, for sometimes expressing some very valid criticism. Um, the We have no freedom of choice as it relates to our data, and that's why they don't welcome interoperability. You can export your data easily, take it somewhere else. They want to lock you into the system because that's where you invested your time. And I think that's what really prevented the mass Twitter migration that we were all kind of seeking is because a lot of people felt, well, that's where I've built, you know, I, it's, it's 13, yeah. 14, 15 years of my life and all my network. Then it comes down to the two last things, which is ownership of our data and our identities, and by extension, also our relationships, and then privacy as a default. End-to-end -end encryption is not something that these platform prioritize or really think about. Um, sometimes it's something that they're bullied into doing after years and years and years of you know, advocacy by organizations like Fight for the Future and EFF and so on. So I would say that really, for me, that was the most compelling way that I could articulate on why we should not settle for the web that we have now and, and why centralized frameworks will always come back to haunt us. Yeah, I think that... <clears throat> I think one of these things is that 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 you describe right is that if you're dealing with a particular community um that community often has like first of all it has a set of like its own interests and and values and if it has some commonality it's going to be a commonality with other communities right rather than the kind of average big platform user um and the other sort of part of it is like that platform has its own interests, right? It, it, it doesn't necessarily, even if what the user wants is a particular thing, like there are a million things that Google could do to improve usability and they work pretty hard at improving usability. Um, they're never going to release a Google ad blocker right? Um, mm -hmm. or make that easier for anyone to use. And so... By, I mean, again, another good example, right, that you, you raise is identity and anonymity in the, you know, platforms really kind of need to want to know who you are. Um, and so it's very hard to build into any system on top of that a way of protecting people's identity. Um like, were you, when you were working, when you still are working with people, do you have, do you 
know who everybody is? Are you like are you building that that how do you deal with the question of identity in a system where knowing who someone is or who they know is a particularly kind of um, dangerous thing to know? Really, a big part of it is taking a chance. We don't have people come and disclose their identities. We have to verify their identities. In the early stage, when we were creating Ahuat.org, which is our LGBT plus you know, platform for Arab uh, youth in particular, that was a big thing is, oh, well, how do we know somebody's not going to come and infiltrate the system? But the thing is, is that we specifically made it very deliberate and in fact required for users to be fully you know, anonymous and not share um, identifying data. And that was because we wanted it to be very open and inviting without that barrier that we saw in many other platforms. For the longest time, even on LinkedIn, there was no way that you could have a profile and not have a picture. And, you know, on Facebook, you had to upload your identifying data. Otherwise, they lock your account because they think your name is fake. I mean, there's many things that were very problematic and that were punishing anonymity on the web. And, the, and what, what made the web so great was the privacy and anonymity aspect. And I don't think it necessarily has to go hand in hand with just we have to accept that there will always be trust and safety issues. That's something that we, for the most part, found a way to kind of solve for. I wouldn't say it's perfect, but it was sort of, it was a gamification system. It was where you can come and based on the type of interactions, if you were leaving helpful comments, sharing interesting resources, people were seeing value in how you were engaging then you would kind of graduate to different levels of the site and gain access to the chat room and eventually gain access to being able to be a moderator and so on and so forth. And sometimes that takes years for you to build up that type of credibility, but it also makes it harder for a troll or somebody with bad intentions to come and invest years in basically being a very supportive you know, understanding person who is going out there and sharing really helpful, you know, mm -hmm. uh, sources. So it, it, I think there are ways to bring together anonymity, trust and safety without it necessarily having to say, no, they're, the only way is to just verify someone's identity. And often you hear online, well, that's the only way you're going to be accountable for your actions is if you are saying it as yourself and not as an anonymous person. Um, and, you know, to some extent that's true, but for the most part, it's not. I mean, I think it harms the creativity that we have on the web, because when you say something like that, you're kind of alienating and isolating all the people who, because of their um, environments and context, they cannot be who they are fully, authentically online, because they will get killed. They will get in prison. The person that you are authentically online is maybe a queer person in Yemen, for example, or in Iraq, you know, or Saudi Arabia. So that's why it's really hard, you know, when people say, well, if you're not you, then you're not accountable, and we don't want somebody like that in our community. Um, so that's why we actually made it required um, that if, to you, for you to participate, you have to be fully anonymous. And we have been able to create a, for the most part, you know, kind of um, a, a healthy community that has over 12,000 users, where of course, every now and then there would be issues and, you know, any inappropriate behavior or comments, but I mean, 12, um, and that has been going on for more than 14 years. So a community with that amount of people with anonymity at its core can survive. Right. for this number of years based on how you design the systems. I find, 
I find one of the more interesting kind of effects of the creation of these large social media and kind of the acceptance and the dominance that they have kind of in media referrals, media references to this. Like I was always really frustrated when I would write something about Facebook or whatever, and it would get so much more coverage than if I was talking about something that didn't have like a recognizable trademark attached to it. So that would like increase the dominance of these things. But I think the hardest thing to the hardest sort of long-term effect of it is it made people not really believe that anything else was, was possible, right? That, that, that you, you'd seen these things kind of come out like Twitter, the construction of Twitter was in many ways, a very arbitrary thing, right? Like they were trying to, you know, do IRC or another kind of like chat kind of thing. And okay, we'll make it text messages. So we'll make it 140 characters. And like maybe we'll have replies or threading you going, there are a million other ways to do this, right? Like you could have anonymity, you could not have anonymity. And, and as those things constricted around like the average user, that just meant, first of all, people were excluded or their, their appearance on the, in the web kind of disappeared. And also people just didn't believe that, that there's an alternative. Um, and it continued, like you say, like I spend a lot of time talking about like, here is a group of 20,000 people it's not 3 billion or whatever the statistics are, but it's different and it's, it's better and more viable. Um, so, okay. So now let's bring us, bring us up to like the Monday. Um, we, we were, you, you, you DM me on Mastodon cause that's what we do. Right. Um, insecurely incidentally, but anyway, um, and said, look, I'm working, I'm working in this new sort of decentralized kind of environment these days. And I found that kind of interesting because it, does it feel like, does it feel like you're starting from scratch or does it feel like something that's exciting and new? Does it feel like a kind of escape? Like what does it feel like compared to what you've been doing in the last few years? I think it's a continuation of my work, but maybe at scale. Oh, okay. So I feel, you know, for the most part that I was always excited about working on something at the foundational or infrastructural level that might have an impact in how people use the web. And if, it, if those things are um, consistent with my principles and values, then that's what makes me very excited. Because I feel like for the most part, so many of these tools, protocols, infrastructures are getting built with privacy and security sometimes as an afterthought. And, or they would mention privacy and security in very limited contexts and not really think about how can these protocols platforms, uh, applications can be weaponized against marginalized communities. So to go into a team at the very early stages and be able to really um, ensure that they are comfortable with the fact that there are you know, a, a much more diverse communities and use cases for us to take into consideration as we are building the protocol and as we are expanding and, you know, exploring different types of use cases. I think that's something that I'm very personally feel excited to um, be able to participate in and bringing in all of that lived experience, but also bringing in everything that I've learned in the 20 plus years building on the net 
and all the limitations and frustrations I experienced in these types of frameworks um, and, and, you know, centralized systems. Do you think so? I would say that that's what makes me, um, you know, excited for this shift. Do you think some of your values come from like using the net, like when you were younger? Is it, 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 do you feel like that when, for instance, you have that spiky response to a centralized system, does that come from some earlier politics or does that come from the fact that you were excited about this initially decentralized system in the first place? I would say that I used the net, the, uh, when I first started using the internet, it was really in order to, it was a band-aid to what I was experiencing in everyday life, which is that you can talk about these human rights issues. The media was completely controlled. It was very one-sided. Um, there was no engaging platforms, nothing. The radio, newspapers, magazines, everything was completely controlled. Cable channels were controlled. If there was a news channel that was there that was criticizing something the government was doing, that was, you know, they would get rid of that immediately. Um, so I, I already... I would say that for me, it was censorship that brought me into the web and then the web made me into a privacy advocate because that's where I realized that I had this big hope and dreams and aspirations for the web. And early on, I could see those, you know, in the early 2000s and the mid 2000s. And then slowly and slowly it was chipping away and we were seeing the kind of how big media started taking over all the independent media sources and buying them up and becoming just a very homogenous voice, that was what was happening on the internet as well. All these smaller companies were being bought up, you know, it was the same funders, the same VC companies kind of supporting the same things over and over again. There was really no welcoming for, you know, innovation. Um, and they really took advantage of the fact that people were just flocking um, to these systems because they made it look so expensive and impossible and difficult to reimagine a new web. And so the barrier to entry when it comes to rethinking or reimagining infrastructure, even if it's just at the messaging level, a lot of people just made that very difficult um, for us to be a part of. Mm -hmm. So I would say it was really, you know, it started with being frustrated in censorship, looking at the web as, as a remedy to that, and then being disappointed with how the web was operating. And that is what turned me into, you know, uh, a privacy and anti-surveillance advocate. So I think it's a really good sign when an organization like X XMTP Labs picks up someone like you, right? And goes, oh, there is like this expertise. There is, there is also a audience who are being really underserved by the existing, the existing systems that will take and use our stuff for, for positive uses. Um, but there's only one of you. <laughs> so what, I mean, what, if you were to give a sort of lesson in for other D-Web, other Web3 kind of startups and how to engineer their protocols or their systems to succeed in the way that you succeeded and to succeed in the, against a, a centralized sort of backdrop, what's your like, lesson plan what would you what would you tell people i would say that there's a lot of people increasingly 
with these frustrations that I'm experiencing from my communities that I think could be incredibly helpful in redesigning and reimagining, you know, how the web could operate from their perspectives. As we see, you know, with all the data of the successful takedown request of governments, we are seeing a, this is the most I've seen people incredibly frustrated and disappointed with censorship in a very, very long time. Mm. And I think there, with that frustration, a lot of people are beginning to wonder how and, you know, um, what can I do to really participate? Even if you don't necessarily have engineering expertise, there's a lot of things that you can come and bring in terms of UX research, in terms of just thinking about design principle, trust and safety and decentralized frameworks. So I would say... The biggest gift of decentralization and, and more specifically decentralized protocols is that it's not based on the vision of just one or two people. It's a whole foundation. And that is a network made possible by communities, both developer communities and the users that adopt them. Um, it's a very collaborative uh, ecosystem um, rather than a monolithic system that just takes and takes from you. So I would say to talk to people, you know, to connect with civil society organizations in particular. You mentioned some that I'm on the board of. There's, of course, many others, but these are some of the organizations, you know, whether it's TOR, whether it's Access Now, whether it's the Electronic Frontiers Foundation, Fight for the Future. They also have, you know, a lot of exciting ideas and principle in terms of, well, how do we, you know, we are, we're not just trying to hold big tech accountable. We're also trying to figure out how do we build a better web for everybody and beyond that, how do we build a web where, again, we come back to the idea where we are in control of our own messages beyond just encrypting them, but actually owning them, having portability over them? And that's a very powerful thing. You know, that's not really something that people often think about in the background is, oh, you know, is this app that I'm using decentralized or not? Of course, people just want something that works. Um but more and more people are th thinking more consciously about data privacy, data breaches, and how that inter how that connects to our identity, um, especially considering that messaging um, is the most intimate aspect of our digital lives. You know, but we don't often think about the fact that, hey, I don't generally have ownership over my own messages and my relationships. Our conversations and connections are confined usually in a single app. You know, and it's operated or stored by central uh, I, I, um, entities. And that means that our relationships are scattered across multiple platforms. And we're almost giving up this data. And with that is really a big chunk of who we are. So I think it really comes much more than just, okay, we don't want to use big tech and whatnot. But this is who we are online is a big extension of our identity. And it goes hand in hand with our privacy, which is our dignity and our security. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel this, uh, it, it, it was all coming into this space because, you know, I think people, uh, and I think it's a valid criticism that, you know, Web3 and crypto and all of these things are very inward facing, right? Like it was a big enough community to just concentrate. But if I was to compare it to these previous tech communities, I was struck I continue to be struck by how global it is, right? And I think partly it's because, you know, there's money involved, right? And like money, a small amount of money for like a, someone in America is like, oh, that just pays for a cup of coffee. And like other places that can be like a, a significant amount. But more generally, I think it's it's an indication of what you, you're saying, right? Like if you're building protocols and you're trying to build them in an open way, at least in theory, you have an easier on-ramp 
right? Like, uh, you know, you were in Bahrain, you know, in a slightly more ridiculous way. I was, I was, I was in the UK and even though like clearly the center of, of internet development was in the U S at those times, I still, there was still a way to build something on our own terms um, and connect to all of that without having to be there. I mean, the irony is that, that we're both kind of here at the moment, but, <laughs> <laughs> but, but maybe just such you in. But, um, well, thank you so much, Ezra. Um, if people want to follow what, um, what you're working on now, what's the best place that they can, uh, they can go to? Uh, well, I'm on Mastodon these days. I'm also just, um, you know, I like to go to the events, you know, the, the, the Moss Fest out there, the RightsCon. I often like to kind of put together these discussions that encourage people to look at decentralization a little bit more closely and consider them for their human rights work. This is a big part of what I do is um, really trying to make sure that communities everywhere are aware of the alternatives that are out there and are considering them as potentially very viable, you know, alternatives to what we have today that are secure, private, more cost efficient, not, you know, by no means perfect, but that's exactly why we need the people who care about these, um, these principles to also join sort of a lot of these D-Web efforts and know that there are people like us out there um, who are thinking about these things. So I would say, you know, the best way is really Mastodon, but I would, there are also many communities and people out there who um, are sharing the value of decentralization in ways that go far beyond just creator economies and tokenization and things like that, but really as it relates to more specifically um, human rights and taking yeah. um, the advocacy for human rights sort of to the next um, level. Yeah. So, uh, RightsCon is a, a conference done by, um, Access Now that you're on the board of. It's great. I totally recommend that as a place to meet people on the cutting edge of, of, of really fighting and defending rights and needing the technology to do that. MozFest is Mozilla's, uh, regular annual, I guess, um, event. And, um, I'll pop your Mastodon, um, address into our notes so people can follow on there. Thanks very much. Great. Ezra. Great Thank you so much. I appreciate it. All right.